Hey guys, and welcome to the eighth episode of the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. As usual, you're joined by myself, Jack, and Tiara, and we're really excited to bring you the eighth episode, which will be doing a typical Q&A style episode, which will begin straight away. So we Yeah, let's dive into it. We had quite a few good questions, probably like I would say our best round yet, where like a lot more in-depth questions and something like more specific to people's interests, which I think is great. And yeah, we'll dive straight into the first question, which is... So the first question is from Naomi Lewis. Thank you so much for asking this. And it says, should I supplement with L-carnitine to help reach my fat loss goals faster? So yeah, L-carnitine is a pretty popular supplement which is marketed mainly for fat loss. Yeah, it's probably the number one fat loss marketed supplement, I'd Mm. say. Yeah, the most popular one at least. Now, the thing about L-carnitine is that L-carnitine is a compound in every single cell in our bodies. And the role of L-carnitine is that it's responsible for shuttling fatty acids into the mitochondria so that they can undergo beta oxidation and be burnt as Mm. fuel. Yeah, mitochondria basically like the powerhouse of the cell. Yeah, so that's where, you know, glycolysis occurs and um, how essentially we produce energy for our bodies. Now, the theory behind supplementing with L-carnitine is that if we have elevated levels of L-carnitine in the bloodstream, we're gonna be able to shuttle more fatty acids into our mitochondria and hence burn more energy and hence burn more fat. Now, this is a fine theory, but unfortunately it's not the way that human physiology actually works because it just happens that we produce L-carnitine ourselves. We don't need to obtain it from the diet. Our body can synthesize it all by itself. And our cells are already saturated with L-carnitine, which means that they have the maximum amount that they need in order to perform their role. And supplementing with excess L-carnitine will not lead to greater fat loss. Now, Jack, what would lead to greater fat loss, do you think? Maybe an energy deficit. Yes. So essentially, in order to lose fat, you just need to be in an energy deficit. So following the basic principles of lowering your calorie intake to be consuming less calories than whatever you're burning in combination with resistance exercise, adequate sleep, adequate protein. And yes, um, yes, to answer your question, L-carnitine will not necessarily aid in further fat loss or weight loss. Yeah, and this sort of leads um, really well into the next question, which is for fat loss, what do you eat if you're doing a weight session first thing in the morning? Yes. And I guess the same principle applies here in that an energy deficit is overarching like 90 to 95% of what you need to lose fat. Mm. So if not more, um, it's just basic like physics even. Yeah, unfortunately there are no magic foods or magic macronutrient combinations that you could consume in the morning that would further enhance fat loss. Not even, you know, apple cider vinegar with lemon and water. (laughs) But yeah, going off like a bit more deep into that, like if you're working out in the morning, do what works for you the best. So say if you haven't had, because you want to be fueled for your training and be able to perform at your best. So for example, Tia and I both train in the morning. 
So we eat a decent meal before training. So we have enough glycogen and we have enough fuel for training. Yeah, especially and protein in that meal as well to um, help prevent muscle catabolism and to kickstart that recovery process too. Yeah. And yeah, I guess that's even more important if you don't have a like a lot of carbohydrates the night before because your your liver will store glycogen and will, your mus- you'll have muscular stores of glycogen. But for example, I don't have much carbs in the evening. No real specific reason behind that. But so I make sure I have a very large or a large amount of carbohydrates before training. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, that training session, if you fuel yourself adequately, you're going to be able to burn more calories overall, which will further enhance your weight loss. So, yes, in general, make sure that you are eating something in the morning. Jack and I aren't huge advocates really at all for fasted training. If you are planning to train early in the morning and you just don't have much of an appetite, at least consuming maybe something with some protein in it. So in this case, even a protein shake would be pretty optimal Mm. or even a piece of fruit like a banana. It doesn't have to be a huge meal, but just as long as you do have some fuel. Yeah, so optimally speaking, it probably would be best if you could situate your workout where you have eaten something beforehand. But I guess this is also where intra-workout comes into play. Mm. So intra-workout is just basically a source of protein and or a source of carbohydrate. Yeah, so commonly you'll see people um, make an intra-workout shake. Uh, You can essentially just use a combination of some protein powder and some powdered carbohydrates. So this can just be some dextrose powder or, hey, even Powerade is Mm. a good option. You just want a combination of carbohydrates in there and protein. Some people even use like essential amino acid blends, but they provide you with the exact same thing as protein powder and they're probably a lot more expensive, eh? Or even just like some snakes or something with a, yeah, low, very high GI and easily absorbed. Yeah, it's just the main thing is because if you're training weights first thing in the morning fasted and if you're trying to lose weight as well, you're already in an energy deprived state and overnight you have essentially depleted your liver of glycogen and liver glycogen is responsible for releasing glucose into your bloodstream, whereas muscular glycogen, which probably isn't that high either if you are in a severe energy deficit, can only provide fuel for your contracting muscle cells. It doesn't actually contribute to blood glucose levels. So yeah, if you have depleted that liver glycogen overnight, you just might find that you're not going to have a very productive training session in the morning. You're, you might not feel very strong. You might fatigue quite quickly. So in, might feel a bit hypoglycemic as well. Yeah, exactly. So just during just doing during your workout, you could consider uh, sipping on some sort of intra-workout shake. So that could even be anywhere between like. I don't, what do you say, like 20 grams of... Well, yeah, it depends on the weight of the person, but... Mm. I'd say anywhere around 20 grams of a good quality protein source, like a whey protein source, and depending on your carbohydrates, um, at least 20 grams to 30 grams of carbohydrates. Highly individual. We'll move on, just because we do have a few good questions today. And the next one is how you dealt with family... Sorry, how you deal with family members when they fad diet or have incorrect views about their training or diet? Okay, so I guess the first thing is is that I don't judge anyone. For example, I have quite a few family members who have followed, you know, for short-term various diets, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian. They might do different types of exercise protocols. And 
I, I would never cast judgment on them because overall they are just trying to do a good thing for their body and they might just be a little bit misinformed. So instead of, you know, saying you're wrong or don't you know what the research says or calling someone an idiot, like that's not a very good way for them to listen to you. Essentially in that case, I would just have a conversation with them and just ask them about, you know, what they're doing and what their main goals are for that. And essentially, I'd try to talk to them about it. I'd try to throw sustainability into the mix, you know, asking them if they're enjoying whatever protocol they're on or whatever sort of exercise regime they're undertaking or whatever type of diet they're doing and asking them, you know, realistically, do you think that you'll be sticking to this for a long time? And just depending on how that conversation goes, you can talk to them about longer term, more sustainable practices that they can adopt. You can do, you know, come up with a few strategies with them. Just don't cast any judgment, just speak to them about it, you know, because that's the only way they're really gonna listen with you. Mm. Yeah, one of the things I probably dislike most about the rep that dietitians get is being the food police. And I'm sure any dietitian or any dietetic student can um, agree with me. And yeah, that, especially when it comes to family and friends, I don't like being, say, like going out to dinner with someone and them ordering like a dessert and then looking guiltily at you. I really don't like that. So, and the same goes with, so that sort of applies to my approach with my family. Like I, I just let them do what they want. Like they all know that I'm educated in this field so they can ask me for help whenever they want. And yeah, and that, that has happened. Like I helped my brother with um, going to the gym and like any sort of diet surrounding that because he's also vegetarian as well so yeah and I've helped I've done quite a few um, PT sessions with my sisters just for free and I've helped them with their diets you know and even following vegetarian and vegan diets just trying to help them out mm. yeah that's essentially that's what a lot of health practitioners are really just trying to do they're just trying to help people they're not trying to judge people and tell them that they're wrong but if people are seeking help, then we're more than happy to give it just like we are right now. So that most recent question was asked by Daniel Abella. So thanks, Daniel. And we just have a very quick one here, which is, will you guys upload on Spotify? Yeah, so I tried to look into uploading onto Spotify. Uh, right now, Jack and I are paying like a yearly subscription on SoundCloud which allows you to upload to Stitcher and iTunes. But unfortunately, for some reason, it doesn't allow you to upload to Spotify. Mm -hmm. So in order to upload to Spotify, what I'd need to do is I'd need to pay to go on with some other company to put in my RSS feed, and then I could upload that to Spotify. So maybe when we get to a thousand listeners per episode. Yeah, exactly. Maybe, yeah, exactly. As we grow, perhaps we could go onto Spotify, but right now we are engaging with a lot of people through iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And I'm not sure if uploading to Spotify would make too much of a difference. I'm so sorry if that's the only app that you have, but hopefully you have one of the other three oh, yeah. as well. Everyone should, yeah, either SoundCloud uh, podcast app or Stitcher. So there's, yeah, those three options. Okay, so the next two ones are quite good. Um, they're both about macronutrients. So Caleb Johnston asked, what are the benefits in tracking macronutrients? So yeah, this is my interpretation of the question. I guess there's two ways to interpret it. So what are the benefits in tracking, I guess, calories or macros 
overall. But I guess my interpretation, because I know who Caleb is, I'll be interested to see what his actual intent was. But why is it benefit to track macronutrients as opposed to calories? So yeah, there's two distinct differences between the two. So macros is obviously tracking your separate carbs, protein, and fat, whereas calories is obviously tracking the just, calories. Yeah, just the total energy you're taking in through the day. Mm. And it, it does depend on what your goals are. So say if you're in a surplus and bulking, like tracking uh, calories will definitely achieve your goal. And macronutrients is, I guess, just a cherry on top. Uh, but there are a few reasons as to why you would want to track your macros as opposed to calories. And probably one of the primary reasons among that is some people like to ensure that they're having a given amount of each macronutrient per day. So one of the more recent, I guess, approaches to to bulking is to try a higher carbohydrate approach, which is what Tierra and I both do. And so probably leaving at fat at around one gram per kilo of body weight or less and protein at around anywhere between two to 2.5 grams per kilo and filling in the rest with carbs. So that's... Yeah. And the, the reasoning for that is that with that amount of protein, you're going to provide enough protein to induce muscle protein synthesis and help with recovery purposes. Also, the main reasoning for that high carbohydrate approach is that it's just going to help fuel those training sessions. Carbohydrates are a much preferable source for energy compared to fats, especially in an environment where you are doing heavy lifting and uh, quite a lot of resistance training. And fats certainly have a role for absorbing fat-soluble vitamins and having a hormonal purpose in the body to synthesize hormones. However, they don't need to necessarily be much higher than one gram per kilogram of body weight. Yeah, and I guess tracking macros is probably even more important when you're in a deficit and dieting in general and for a competition as well. And this is because if you fluctuate your macros, say especially your carbohydrates, your weight in turn will fluctuate. And that is because for every gram of glycogen that you store, and glycogen is a storage form of carbohydrates. Mm, you, um, you retain around three milliliters of water. Yeah, so say if you eat... 200 grams of carbs one day, the next day, because you're just tracking calories, you um, consume like 500 grams of carbs, then you're going to be way significantly more the next day. And that's not necessarily going to be fat. It'll just be water. Yeah, so. exactly. So you'll have huge weight fluctuations there. And it's just going to be really hard to track data consistently. Yeah, pretty much. But I think one of the main benefits of tracking macronutrients is it just gives you a baseline knowledge for the types of macronutrients that different foods contain. For example, if people are given a meal plan and the only carb carbohydrate sources on there are rice and oats, but they don't actually understand what carbohydrates are or what other foods contain carbohydrates, they're gonna feel restricted to just rice and oats when there is a world out there full of carbohydrate containing foods. Also, it allows for more variety in the diet. You don't want to be feel restricted in it as though you need to eat the exact same thing every single day. And yeah, especially like Jack was talking about before, if you're in an energy deficit, counting macronutrients versus calories is going to ensure you are consuming enough protein at certain times of the day, evenly spread out. 
And if your carbs are quite restricted, you can strategically eat those in and around the meals that surround your training sessions in order to fuel those training sessions, train harder, and also recover more adequately from those training sessions. Mm. So moving on to the next macronutrient associated question is just a general like response to macronutrient timing. Okay, so macronutrient timing. So overall, I guess we'll just start with protein. Protein, you do wanna pretty much evenly distribute throughout the day. So anywhere between three to five boluses, which is just a fancy word for a meal or a snack with protein in it. And how much should they be getting each so bolus? So I'd say at least 20 to 30 grams of a high biological value source. So that means protein from an animal source. However, if you don't consume animals and you are a vegetarian or a vegan, you certainly can consume protein from plants. Just make sure that you're mixing different types of plant protein. And because the absorption of plant proteins is limited compared to animal source proteins, you might need to consume a bit more. So somewhere more in the 30 to 40 gram range per meal for protein. Yeah. And then what about carbohydrates? So carbohydrates is very much dependent on your training. And yeah, many different approaches can be taken. But I guess the typical approach for carbohydrates is ensuring that you have adequate fuel prior to training. So usually anywhere between like one to three hours, I would say. And or some like in prep, you can even do it even sooner. Um, because like personally, Tiara and I, if we ate like two hours away from training would be like starving in the middle of our workout. Yeah, but. we like full bellies. <laughs> and yeah, and getting a uh, source of carbohydrates after training is very important as well to replenish your glycogen stores. Mm -hmm. And just help with recovery processes too. Even having um, a bit of carbohydrates in there with a protein source can enhance the absorption of that protein and further induce muscle protein synthesis to an extent as well. Mm. But yeah, I guess the further away you get, if you're a competitor, the further away you get from being complete per se, the less it really matters that much yeah. because your carbohydrates are likely to be pretty high. So you're not gonna be consumed, like let's say you were on 400 grams of carbs per day, you're not just gonna consume 200 grams pre and 200 grams post-workout and not have any carbohydrates left during the day. You'll probably spread those out pretty evenly between your meals, especially having a high carbohydrate meal before sleep can induce greater release of serotonin, which is that feel-good hormone and it helps to relax us and it has been associated with better quality sleep. But however, I, I would just recommend, especially if you are on a high carbohydrate diet, um, just spread your carbohydrates out evenly across the day. Mm. And then, Especially when whilst you're in a surplus, uh, not many, I think there is a bit of a misconception around this, but uh, say if you do a really hard training session, maximally you're really only be losing about 40% of your glycogen stores. So it's not like you're completely de depleted of muscle glycogen and you desperately need carbohydrates. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not the end of the world. Yeah, the only type of athletes that really deplete muscle glycogen are like endurance runners or endurance cyclists who are exercising for hours and hours on end. Mm. But so, yeah. I guess the last one remaining would be fat. So fat, I guess, again, can be um, spread pretty evenly throughout the day. One thing 
it, it depends on the individual, but I would say having at least 10 to 20 grams of fat actually in your pre-workout meal, especially if you find that you're very insulin sensitive, because what I found is that if I just consume a very high carbohydrate meal before my workout, and then I dive straight into lifting weights, my insulin sensitivity is very high, and I find that I slightly go a little bit hypoglycemic, which means my blood glucose levels drop because glucose is just being sucked into my muscle cells. So having a bit of fat in your pre-workout meal can help to slow down digestion and slow the release and the absorption of glucose into your bloodstream. So that can be quite helpful. I guess the only meal that you'd probably try to avoid having too much fat in would be your post-workout meal. Yeah. And yeah, just because fat is very good at slowing the digestion of protein and carbohydrate. So if you're having a fair bit of fat in your post-workout meal and you really want to be maximizing the absorption of protein and carbs, then yeah, it's not that's not going to be optimal. But realistically, again, if you're in a surplus, how much difference is it really going to be making? Yeah, it's not it's not really going to it's not going to make or break you. These are really just, yeah. you know, the cherry on top of the cake. Mm. I guess. Again, most to be honest, most of the things that we say make a difference are probably much more relevant to when you're in a calorie deficit than when you're in a surplus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess one last thing to add about fat is that fat is quite satiating. So especially if you are in prep or in a calorie deficit, you can consume it strategically. So for example, if you are not exercising for a few hours and you have a couple meals before that, perhaps having the first few with perhaps more of your daily fats in there, that can leave you satiated for longer so you won't be so hungry between meals. Mm. Mm. Yeah, like when I was in prep, I had quite a high fat breakfast and a high fat dinner to yeah satiate me at those times. So. Mm-hmm. But they were high carb too. <laughs> yeah, I was fortunate. Yes, but... <laughs> lucky guy. And that question, by the way, was asked by John Scarves. Thanks for your question. All right, so next one. Yep. All right, so this question says, how much weight do you plan to gain before your next comp? How much? (laughs) So, yeah, I've been, my weight definitely hasn't been to schedule the last, uh, since finishing my comp, just because of my injury. And yeah, and to be honest, I was probably a bit slack in weight gain anyway. So how, how low was your lowest weight for comp? So very carb glycogen depleted, I was 74. And then on stage, I was probably around 76. And then how much do you weigh now? Uh, 81.4 this morning. (laughs) Oh, and I'm pretty sure a few podcasts ago, we said by February, Jack was going to weigh 82. So Jack... (laughs) It's, it's all the, it's the hot weather. This is now documented on the podcast. <laughs> so that means that you need to, he needs to be 83. So you need to gain a kilogram and a half in February. And February yeah. is the shortest month of the year. But we are going to have access to a buffet yes, in February. Yes, we will be eating. <laughs> all right, so how much do you plan to gain before your next comp? Yeah, that's a interesting question. Uh, I'm probably going to plan, we'll see how everything goes, but I'll probably plan to compete. Don't know what... Um, class or federation yet but probably in 2021 so nice and long time away just to develop everything get big get big to get big get big to get big (laughs) and yeah so i probably plan to gain around one to 1.5 kilos per month keep doing that until i my body fat probably gets to around like 
16 to 20%. Yeah, and we'll be measuring that via skin folds. Yep. yep. And then, well, apparently I'm 7% now, which I don't think is right, but anyway. <laughs> um, then after that, I shall do a mini cut, probably lose around five to six kilos from that in about as many weeks, and then start that process all over again and keep doing that until I start my diet. So maybe I would like to be like a relatively, like maybe a... 100 kilograms? <laughs> <laughs> Why not, man? Just push it. Yeah, get fat. But, AJ Moore says push it. And so may, I'd like to be maybe 90 kilos and probably like 12 to 13% body fat when mm. I decide to compete next. Yeah, okay. Well, get big to get big. And like an actual 12 to 13%, not like, <laughs> hey, bro, I'm 12 to 13. <laughs> okay. Um, and then should I answer that as well? Yeah. Yeah, okay, well... Chira's actually beating me in the weight gain so far. Hell yeah, I am. I'm 10 kilograms up since comp. And Jack, you are, you're like eight, (laughs) maybe. Um, So yeah, yeah, I've actually gained 10 kilograms. I was 56.9 on the day of my show. And now I'm weighing in at around 67. So I'm getting big. (laughs) But yeah, I'm I think I've actually put on quite a bit of muscle mass, though, in these last eight months, just from really pushing it hard and strategically with my training. So pretty happy about that. Uh, But how much do I actually plan to continue gaining? To be honest, I probably will hit 70 kilograms. And that's crazy to say for me, because I don't think I've ever been, I've never been 70 kilograms. That'll be heavy, eh? Mm, but what way. what do you think? Should I push past 70? I don't know. Well, I think there's no reason why females shouldn't utilize mini cut. So I think just reassess at that body weight. Because okay. I, think, I think it's fairly agreed on now that holding your weight isn't necessarily the most productive thing to do. You should mm. either be um, gaining or losing. Okay. And so, yeah. Well, you just have to be very honest with me and say, Tiara, it's time to mini cut. Looking thick. <laughs> okay. <laughs> thick, but delicious. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I don't know, probably 70 kilograms. I'm not sure. I'm just continuing to track my training performance. I'm continuing to track my skin folds, my progress photos, and just how I feel in general. And right now things are continuing to climb. I'm not surprised 10 kilograms up, but Hey, I, I can't complain. I feel pretty phenomenal, but yeah, probably for me, 70 kilograms, I'd say that that's big. That's big for me. Okay, next one. Do you want to ask that one? Yeah, that one. So that is a general question about discussing fiber, the sources, benefits, and types. And sorry if I butchered the name, but I think it's Woodier. Okay, so yeah, there's a lot of hype about fiber and especially the microbiome these days. So we know a fair bit about fiber, but well, not us personally. I'm speaking about science in general. We know a lot about fiber but not necessarily about as much about the microbiome. Mm. So there are th- three different types of fiber. There's soluble, there's insoluble, and there's resistant starch. And resistant starch and insoluble sort of come under the same umbrella. So insoluble is, sorry, soluble is pretty self-explanatory. It is soluble in water, so it dissolves. So mm. um, think about something like oats. When you put oats in water, they swell up because they absorb the water. Yeah, exactly. And insoluble is the opposite. It is not soluble in water. So think about what happens when you put like broccoli in water. Like that's a bad example, (laughs) but it doesn't absorb. It just stays the same. (laughs) And last one is resistant starch. So starch is a type of carbohydrate 
And yep, pair the two together, it's resistant. So it's resistant to our enzymes in the body. So it cannot be broken down by our pancre pancreatic enzymes or other enzymes that we have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so soluble fiber is soluble in water. And what soluble fiber does is it binds to water and it helps us feel full. Um, and it really helps with the satiating part that people often talk about how fiber is very satiating, really fills you up. Another cool thing about soluble fiber is that it can lower the reabsorption of cholesterol. So it can actually help to lower your blood cholesterol levels. So for example, a type of soluble fiber, you might've even heard about it before, it's called beta-glucan. It is a type of fiber found in oats. And what this type of fiber does is that it binds to cholesterol in the small intestine and stops it from being reabsorbed. And then what your body has to do is it has to synthesize more of its own cholesterol. So overall, helps to lower blood cholesterol levels, which can have very favorable outcomes on cardiovascular health. And it, yeah, it also does similar things for bile acids as well. So it basically prevents the reabsorption of bile acids in the small intestine. And bile acids are formed by the liver. And when you, obviously when you excrete the bile acids, the liver has to make more and the liver actually uses cholesterol to do that, and which therefore decreases your cholesterol levels as well. And then following that, we have insoluble fiber. So compared to soluble fiber, ta-da! Insoluble fiber cannot bind to water. So insoluble fiber is often found in things like wheat bran, wheat germ, and it's also found in the skins of fruits and vegetables. Now what insoluble fiber does is that it adds that bulk to our stool and it passes through the small intestine and it goes into the large colon. And this is where it can be fermented by the various types of bacteria in our large intestine and essentially help cultivate more and more bacteria to lead to more bacterial diversity, which hence essentially is the microbiome. Mm. And another important um, role that insoluble fiber plays is basically acting as like a big brush that I guess removes all your dead cells and other um, waste products from your intestines, pushes it all out, obviously ending up in your feces. And yeah, uh, insoluble fiber is, or, and all types of fiber is very important in reducing your risk of bowel cancer. Yeah, especially insoluble fiber because when it's fermented by the bacteria, the bacteria actually produce this short chain fatty acid called butyrate. And butyrate can help to protect the cells in our intestinal lining and it helps to reduce inflammation. And yeah, like Jack alluded to, it's associated with a lower risk of colon cancer. Mm. Another important factor is a lot of people I see and someone in my family actually does this, they supplement with fiber. And I would say one negative to this is that one of the most important things with fiber is getting a diversity of fibers because your bacteria feed on those different types of fibers and therefore create different end products, one being butyrate. And the more diverse fiber range, the more diverse end products. And yes, that's beneficial basically just saying that in short and so yeah just say if just supplementing with like wheat germ like say like 75 80 percent of your fiber intake will be from that one type and it's not going to be giving you as diverse a range as you could be getting so. yeah exactly so you'll just lack diversity in your microbiome and 
right now the research still is limited it really is kind of still a mystery they call the microbiome and the gut our second brain but there's still a lot we still don't know about it and there's mm. still a hell, a hell of a lot to be discovered but it's a very very interesting area yeah. we very quickly we do know that there is a model called the gut brain axis and it's quite you can probably tell from the name but the gut and the brain work together and they have a lot of influence say on your how you feel psychologically and how your body feels how your body how your immune system functions yeah there's a huge role that plays there in immunity and also stress response as well and i guess the last thing we'll just quickly cover is resistant starch so like jack said before resistant starch is a type of starch that we cannot absorb and similar to insoluble fiber it goes into our large bowel and it can be fermented so resistant starch is pretty cool you can actually make resistant starch yourself essentially from certain types of foods so for example if you cook rice or if you cook potatoes and then you put them in the fridge overnight, the structure of the starch there will actually change and it will become resistant to absorption the next time you eat it. So that's a pretty neat thing that we actually mm. learned through food science. So by refrigerating your carbohydrate, and people could even do this accidentally. If you meal prep and have a few meals in the fridge of white rice or potatoes for a few days, over the days, they're actually building up more resistant starch, so. Even a green banana will have more resistant starch than a spotty banana. Yeah, exactly. And again, that just adds to more microbiome diversity and very good for overall health. Yeah, and this is this is probably why we both feel quite strongly about having a more wholesome diet as opposed to something which is like a high processed diet or your yeah. typical I'm definitely not bashing IIFYM here, but for those people who follow IIFYM and only get processed foods as their main sources. Yeah, essentially people who take it to the extremes. Yeah. Yeah, Jack and I are just huge advocates for having a lot of fruits and vegetables, a lot of whole grains, legumes, nuts in your diet. Again, primarily for not only the nutrients those foods provide, but also the different types of fiber they provide and their influence on our microbiome and on our overall health. Yeah. Sweet. All right. So next one. So the next one is by Jack. That must be why it's such a good question. Hey. Okay. <laughs> uh, thoughts on time-restricted eating and its application to a bodybuilding viewpoint. So we sort of covered this in, I think, two episodes ago when we talked about fasting and intermittent fasting. So yeah, time-restricted eating is basically another form of fasting. And we, yeah, we even covered sort of covered it this episode as well when we talked we talked about um, fasting before training. Basically, you got to look at your protein intake throughout the whole day, whether you're in a surplus or a deficit and when you're training. So just going through those points individually, if you're in a surplus or deficit, uh, if you're on a surplus, your overall total protein intake is probably the most important thing. Secondary to that is your protein feedings throughout the day. When you're in a deficit, that becomes a bit more important because you do want to have a more consistent elevation of muscle protein synthesis, which is obtained through protein feedings. Yeah, that's what's going to help you retain your muscle mass during prep. So if you're restricting your um, time of eating, say if you're not eating for 16 hours and then eating for eight hours, then you'll have 16 hours without this elevation of MPS. Yeah, exactly. So you just have to think about what is your overall arching goal? Do you want to retain or do you want to build as much muscle mass as possible? Or 
I guess, what would be the other goal? Um, well, just for fun. <laughs> just for fun? Do people fast for fun? Well, Is that a thing? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, no, people who just train for fun and then they have it as a hobby, then they might like, oh, I want to try fasting and that sort oh, of see. stuff. But yeah, I think I know this guy. So he's serious about bodybuilding. So yeah. I would personally, if I was to do time-restricted feeding myself, I would modify it slightly and probably put some pure protein feedings in throughout your non-eating window. Mm. So say if you're, oh yeah, I won't give an example, but yeah. So say two or three protein feedings and then you can eat all your yummy um, carb and fat containing meals with more protein still in your feeding window. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what Matt Ogus did during his prep. He was having big chipotle bowls and salads at night, but yeah. he was making sure he was still having like a protein shake or two throughout the day to keep Synthes. that muscle protein synthesis elevated. <laughs> yeah, but um, if you want to hear more about that, I definitely recommend that you go back to our episode six, I believe, and listen to what we've talked about in the portion of intermittent fasting. All right, so I guess we have one more question. Yep, so this one's by from Logan. All right, and Logan said... How do you know if you are having too many electrolytes during the day or not enough? So electrolytes, we have probably six main electrolytes in our body. So they are sodium, potassium, chloride, magnesium, phosphate, and calcium. Okay, I knew I'd remember. <laughs> that was impressive. Thank you very much. Um, okay, so those are the six main electrolytes that we have in our blood. So electrolytes are, first things first, is that they are very tightly regulated by the body. So our body very tightly controls how many electrolytes we have in our intracellular and extracellular space, and it will go to great extents to make sure that this stays essentially at an equilibrium mm. and that you don't deplete your electrolytes if possible. And that's why our renal system is so important because that's one of the main mechanisms of regulating these electrolytes. Yeah, exactly. So you might notice, like Tara had more salt before a workout a couple of days ago, and she ended up pissing a lot yeah, more. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I was just excreting a lot of sodium. But then on the other hand, what happens is that if you don't consume enough salt, but your body needs to retain sodium, this adrenal gland, which is on top of your kidney, will release more aldosterone, and aldosterone causes your kidney to reabsorb more sodium and hence reabsorb more water so that it can um, balance out mm. your electrolytes in your body. Because if you have electrolyte imbalance, guys, it can be essentially fatal. You can have heart arrhythmias, um, you can have chronic diarrhea, chronic Fatigue, vomiting. nausea. Yeah, it's awful. But anyway, okay, so how do you know if you're having too many electrolytes during the day? So well, that'll be quite difficult to have because like we said, our bodies are very good at regulating and excreting. Um, you would have to go to great lengths to have too much, like yeah, you probably like take a whole handful of potassium tablets. Yeah, it's or something a, it'd like probably that. have to come to supplementation. I don't know if anyone could like that much salt would just not be palatable. Like I don't mm. think um, you'd have to be uh, drinking or putting a lot of salt on your food. Um, but the one thing is, is that with sodium, I will actually say as well that this is different for people who have a condition. So if someone has uh, kidney disease, they have to limit their potassium and phosphorus and sodium, pretty much all electrolytes in a certain 
circumstances. Mm -hmm. So they can easily go over their limits. For example, uh, salt um, will elevate their sodium, potassium or phosphorus in dairy, etc. Yeah, and even people with kidney disease have to limit the amount of fruits and vegetables they eat, which is unfortunate. But if we are talking about the average healthy individual, a few signs, for example, it's very hot here in Australia right now. And I know when Jack and I are working out, we are sweating a lot and you do lose electrolytes through your sweat. Now, ways to combat this are to put more salt onto your meals, eat more fruits and vegetables and just stay well hydrated. But a few signs that you might be, let's say, low in potassium or low in sodium is muscle cramps. Mm. I especially find this when I'm doing calf raises and perhaps I'm pretty dehydrated or I just haven't had enough salt. My calves just cramp up like crazy. It hurts. Um, So that could be an indication or you might feel a little bit dizzy or like Jack said before, a bit fatigued. But essentially the gold standard way to know if you're electrolyte levels are out of range is you need to have a blood test that's really the only way that's the only way that we can really know for certain yeah exactly know for certain but yeah it's i wouldn't you don't you don't need to go after this podcast episode and go get your bloods done like i think you would also know if you were deficient in oh yes of course yeah but the average healthy person their your body is very very good at controlling how many electrolytes you have in your cells and in that extracellular space as well. Just make sure you are staying well hydrated, salting your foods if you aren't Fruits, consuming. legumes. Yeah, if you're not consuming a lot of processed foods, make sure you are putting salt on your foods, mm-hmm. preferably salt with added iodine. And yeah, so yeah. yeah, those are the end of the questions. Yeah, probably my favorite round of questions so far. So mm. thank you. Yeah, I feel like we smashed through those, it was good. And uh, time for the thing we do each episode, which is what we learned each week. So I'll let Tiara go first. No way, man. Because you and I went first last. I went first last time. <laughs> okay. So this week is yeah more of like a personal thing that I learned about myself in in regards to my training. So I've trying been trying to incorporate more back exercises, like sorry, more lower back exercises, which like more stress on my lower back just to try and I guess synchronize myself with the movement and just get used to that load because yeah my back is slowly slowly feeling better don't know whether it's psychological or whether it's physiological yet so so say yesterday it was leg day and I did a few sets of 60 kilos on my back and yeah that felt relatively good of sorry barbell back squats And yeah, the other day before that, I was doing some back extension, which felt good as well. And I've been doing some hamstring focus back extension as well. And yeah, another interesting update is I was also listening to the Competitive Edge podcast with Alicia Gowns, Robbie Frame and... Jared Hustler. Yep. And they interviewed... So Alicia has been struggling with a back injury and I guess chronic pain for a while now. And she was actually interviewed her new physio on that podcast episode and I went uh, after that episode I contacted the her name is Pei and I contacted her and yeah I have my first consult with her coming up so that's very exciting as well that's on Friday right yeah Mm -hmm. that's super exciting and yeah she specializes in I guess it's quite difficult for me to find a allied health professional who understands the sorry I guess the lifestyle and yeah she specializes in 
powerlifting. So yeah. Yeah, so that'll be wait. great. Yeah, that'll be awesome to give an update next week to see how that consultation went. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so I guess to finish one thing that I learned this week. So I actually donated blood today. Um, I really enjoy donating blood. I think it's a great thing to do. It's, it's a very generous thing to do. But the thing about donating blood is that it's not only a generous thing to do for other people, but it can actually have positive implications on your own health. So they've actually done, there's a few studies, I believe, posted in the American Journal of Epidemiology. And they've actually found that regular blood donors are around 33% less likely to have cardiovascular disease and can be up to 88% less likely to suffer from a heart attack, which is awesome. So um, the, some of the few, a few benefits from donating blood, I guess the first one is that you get to have kind of like a mini health checkup for free because you'll meet with a nurse and she's gonna take your heart rate, your blood pressure, they're going to test your hemoglobin levels. And just from having those few measures taken, um, you can see you know, where you're at, perhaps if you are hypertensive or hypotensive, perhaps if you have an elevated heart rate or not, that, that can help to pick things up and see if you need to follow on with a later with a GP. Um, also testing your hemoglobin levels. So hemoglobin is the protein component of our blood, which is also bound to iron and it helps to deliver oxygen around our body. So for example, I believe for a female, it needs to be somewhere between 120 between to 160. So just making sure that you're within that range because if you have low hemoglobin levels or elevated hemoglobin levels, you won't actually be able to donate blood which is pretty neat. So it can just pick up on little things like that just for your own general knowledge about your health. But also donating blood in itself is a great thing because it can help to lower overall body iron stores. And believe it or not, hemochromatosis, which is an elevated level of iron in the body is actually quite common. And being a regular blood donor can help to lower total body iron, which can protect us from cellular damage because too much iron can damage our livers. It can also be oxidized and cause free radicals, which can damage our cells. It can also damage our arteries and again, lead to cardiovascular issues. And also regularly donating blood can help to lower your cholesterol levels and low density lipoprotein levels too. Ooh, and one more thing, because they take about one pint of blood from you and one pint of blood, it'll actually take your body around 650 calories to replenish those blood cells. So I guess it's a pretty damn and generous way, pretty damn easy and generous way to lose 650 calories. However, it's not like right then and there because you're only allowed to donate blood every 12 weeks or so. It will take you around three months to replenish all of those red blood cells. So I guess just imagine you're burning an extra 650 calories over the space of three months. But hey, I guess every little bit counts, right? Yeah. yeah? Okay, so if I convinced you now to donate some blood, I've been trying to get Jack to come with me forever. Yeah, that can be our next date together, Tiara. Oh, how romantic. Oh, wait, that, dude, that means our next date is in three months. Yeah. What the hell? <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> well, it's such a good time that it's... It deserves it, a long way. Is it worth the wait? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's close to our three years. So we're going to go give blood on our three-year anniversary. Sure. Wow. How romantic. Wow. Okay. You heard it here first, guys. Hmm. <laughs>
guess I have to hold to it now. But <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's the end of our eighth episode. Thanks everyone for tuning in for this week. We appreciate everyone who listens. And yeah, as always, if you enjoyed it, please share with your friends and family. Don't forget to take a screenshot and share it on your stories as well. So we know that you listened. We would both really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. And um, I guess we'll catch you next week. Yep. See you guys. Bye-bye.